If you turn with me to the passage in which today's teaching is based, it comes from Luke chapter 15. It's a very famous passage. We're going to be looking at the parable of the lost son, the parable of the prodigal son. It comes from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and you never dis- and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And this is God's word. Okay, now I want you to know as we start this passage, this is a really, really pivotal passage for us as a church. Um, In many ways, this passage um, lays the groundwork and the foundation of uh, what we embrace when we talk about being gospel-centered. But it's filled with hard sayings, and that's why we're covering this passage. It's something that we do need to revisit Uh, once in a while as a church to remind ourselves of the Father's heart um, and um, uh, really that'll lead us into a worship and a delight in God. Now, what's not printed in your bulletins, um, which you haven't seen on screen, is verse one, but verse one's very important. Verse one of chapter 15 says that there were tax collectors, these were the sinners, that were gathered around Jesus And the Pharisees muttered. They muttered. They were talking. They were grumbling. Why is Jesus, why isn't he talking to us? 
why is he hanging with them? That's probably what they said. So Jesus tells this parable. You have to know that the tax collectors and the sinners, they were the irreligious of their day. Tax collectors were almost regarded kind of the way you would view a drug dealer today in Kensington. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they were the religious folk. And yet here you have both parties present. And Jesus is speaking to both at the beginning of this text. So that means that whether you are religious, you grew up in the church, or irreligious, you left the church, came back, or you've never been to church before, and you're here, this lesson appeals and is for and intended for all of us. This narrative begins verses 11 to 12. You got a father and you have two sons. The younger son asks the father for his share of the estate. Now, you have to know, in a typical Jewish estate, the father's wealth is centralized around the elder son because of the principle of primogeniture. The elder son gets the lion's share, gets most of the share of the estate, and it's really up to him to divide and apportion out a certain amount for his younger siblings. But one thing you never do whether you are an elder son or a younger son, you never ask the father for your share of the estate ahead of time. Because think about it. To ask for your share of the estate, to say, I want my share of, your, of the inheritance, is to say what? I wish you were already dead. The very nature of an inheritance requires somebody to die. So what he's saying is, I want my share of the estate. What he's saying is, I wish you were already dead. To ask for your share of the state, of the estate, before the death of your father is to say that I want the blessing of becoming a son, but I don't want you. I want the blessing of being in a relationship with you without being in a relationship with you. Our relationship is merely a means to an end. Now, if you listen to this parable at just at the start of this, in Jesus' day, you would have been appalled. I mean, it's appalling now if you think about it. In ancient times, the younger son, he could have been evicted. He could have been kicked out of his estate, of the estate for this, but he wasn't. In fact, the father hears this. Look at the grace of the father. He honors the request. Totally shocking. Parables, what's specifically unique about parables is that they have punchlines throughout the story, sometimes one, sometimes many. Um, and they're, those, those, those points are intended to shock the listener of their day, and therein lies the lesson uh, that Jesus is trying to teach. People hearing this in Jesus' day, they would have been absolutely shocked. So in verse 12, the father, he divides the estate between his sons. Keep in mind, this is a traditional agrarian culture. That means that in an agrarian culture, you're a farmer, your sons, who are your hired hands, right, free labor, right, and your land, they determined your life. Literally in the Greek, the text says that the father divided his bios, Bios is the Greek word for life. Because in a sense, by dividing his land, he's also dividing his sons. Because he knows what the son's going to do with this land, with this, with, this, with this wealth, with his share, he's going to go off. And so the younger son is literally asking the father to tear his bios apart, to tear his life apart. What a selfish request. And yet, the father does. His heart is the heart of a father. His heart is being ripped apart because, because he is enduring the worst thing that the father can endure, and that is what? The rejection or the betrayal of his sons, his treasure. In ancient times, your wealth was literally measured 
by the number of sons you had and the amount of land you had. And yet here, the father is dividing up his land, dividing up his sons. His heart is literally being torn apart. He's losing both. And yet, he's still gracious. In verse 13, you have this younger son then. He leaves he leaves home, he leaves his father to go to a distant country, and there what happens? He wastes all of the money, squanders his wealth through wild living. And then a severe famine hits. And now this younger son is in a foreign land. He's got no wealth, no friends, no family, barely has a job. He's, he has no food. He's penniless, he's friendless, practically jobless, and he's lost. But then you have this amazing verse, which is the pivotal point of this passage in verse 17. While he is there amidst the pigs, the text says, when he came to his senses. He came to his senses. The text literally says, when he came to himself. In other words, he realizes where he is. I don't belong here. He realizes who he is. I am my father's son. And so in verses 18 to 20, he says, I'm going to go back to the father. And he's got it all planned out. He's got it all scripted out. I'm going to return home. I'm going to confess to the father. And I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the plan is to be asked, to ask the father to take him back in as a hired hand. And he says, in other words, I'm going to work my way back into the house. I'm going to earn my way back into the father's house. But what happens? And this is the shocking part. This is absolutely remarkable especially in ancient times, and this is probably the main punchline in, sense, in a sense of the parable. The father sees his son from far away, and he runs to his son. In the ancient Near East, the father would never run to pick up your cloak, to bare your legs in the ancient Near East in those days is to undignify yourself. It was an undignified act. It was a disgrace in a sense, but here, the father, he doesn't care. There's this reckless abandon. He runs to his son. He embraces his son. He kisses his son. Everybody around right now hearing Jesus is gasping just at the thought of this, the sight of this father lowering his dignity to come to this disgrace of a son. And then the younger son begins the script. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And immediately he's cut off. He doesn't get to finish his proposal. The father says, quick, get the best robe. In other words, I'm not going to wait until you clean yourself up and get your act together. I'm not going to wait for you to earn your way back in. You are naked. I'm going to cover you. You've disgraced me, disgraced yourself. I'm going to give you the ring of honor. You, your feet are tired and they're weathered, so I'm going to give you sandals. You are hungry and starving. Look at you, just skin and bones. I'm going to give you a feast. What's the point of the story? Jesus is saying that there is no dignity that God himself would not sacrifice for you. But the story isn't over. Now you have the elder son who's out in the field and he comes close and he hears music and dancing and he's upset. Why? The younger brother's back. And the servants tell him they gave him the fattened calf. In ancient times, you rarely ate meat. Meat is very costly. 
And you especially would need a calf. You know why? Because a calf, if he's grown up, becomes a cow, can make more cows. That way you will multiply your wealth automatically with just one calf. So the most expensive meal was a calf. The most costly meal was a calf. In ancient times, you rarely ate meat for that reason. And here's the elder son. The elder son says to the father, I never even got a goat, and you killed a fattened calf. How dare you waste our wealth like this on this worthless piece of scum? I should have had a say in this, after all. This is my share of the inheritance. Everything that's left is mine. In verse 29, the son doesn't appeal to his father. He doesn't say, come on, dad. That's not what he does. He says, look. Literally, the text implies, look you. He's insulting his father. He's calling him a fool. He's disgracing his father. Dishonoring his father. Why? Because the estate and the wealth, it's decreasing The son doesn't get his father's heart. He doesn't even refer to the younger son as as his brother. Nowhere does he refer to him as somebody he's related to. He says, he basically implies this, this worthless, that person over there. He doesn't get the father's heart, and yet the father is still so gracious. He goes to his elder son. He says, come inside. Come inside. I mean, you've disgraced me. You've disgraced your brother. Anybody else would have disowned you by now. But I love you. In fact, he says, look at the tenderness of the father. He says, he says, everything I have is yours. And that's the end of the parable. It's open-ended. But from it, we have three things that we're going to learn. One, This passage gives us a true view of God. Two, it gives us a true understanding of our lostness without God. And three, it gives us a true understanding of what it means to be found in God. A true view of God, our lostness without him, what it means to be found in him. First, we're gonna look at uh, this narrative shows us or shapes a real view of God. God is a father. You see, we're taught to view God as a creator. We're taught to view God as a king. We're taught to view God as a patriarch. Maybe he's filled with wrath. Maybe he's vindictive. Maybe he's angry, we say. But look at the text. Here's a father. Where do you see the anger? From the beginning, all you see in this passage is a father who's enduring emotional rejection and betrayal from his treasure. I mean, this is a man of power. He represents the kingliness of God. And yet, you see him from the beginning loving his sons, suffering because of his sons, sacrificing for his sons, and longing for them. And you see his tenderness over and over and over. No one has ever described God like that. Not a Muslim, nor a Hindu, nor a Buddhist, nor a Jewish understanding of God would ever depict or portray God that way. Do you know that in the Muslim Quran, there are 400 names referencing God? 400 names for God in the Muslim Quran, and not one of them refers to him as a father. Quick point. 
Second, it redefines our view of lostness, what it means to be lost without him. In the younger son, you have a traditional view of sin, very obvious view of sin. Uh, he's insulting his, his elders, he's rebelling, disrespecting his elders, carousing with women, self-indulgent, he's filthy and dirty. But the point of this text is not to teach us what is obvious. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't teach us in a parable. If you think about it, what he's really trying to say is, you take your younger son and you take the elder son, together they give us a much more full and radical picture of what sin really is. Why? Because both sons wanted the father's things and didn't want the father. Both sons wanted his wealth and cared much more for his wealth than his dignity and honor. Both sons cared more about the land and their wealth than they cared for the father. Both sons used the father because they had, they had ulterior desires. They had things that they wanted apart from the father at the cost of the father. Both sons wanted to indulge. Even the elder son says, I, I never even got a goat. He wanted status and wealth and power to be accepted. And as you look at the text, what Jesus is really painting for us here is that both sons are lost. I didn't see that growing up, did you? I didn't. That's not how I was taught. The younger son is obvious. He, he was lost because of his badness. I mean, that's obvious. But the elder son is lost because of his goodness. It's easy to look at the younger son and say, selfish, immoral. But look at the elder son. The elder son, moral, selfish. His goodness, his goodness is the exterior veil covering over that deep-rooted pride and selfishness. And you see it, how? You see it in his anger. You see it in his judgment of others, especially when he's denied. He's constantly comparing himself with other people. He says, look you, this piece of scum. He gets all this? When have you ever done anything for me? That's what he says. And Jesus is saying both sons are lost because both sons are using the father for things. They're coming to the father for things. Both sons are using the father as a way of finding a way to control their own lives. Apart from the father, the younger son, his sin is overt, obvious. But the elder son, it's complicated, it's nuanced because his sin is covert. The irony, right? This is the irony. It's the younger son, the bad son, that's back in the house. The younger son gets the celebration. The younger son experiences the banquet and the music and the food and the feast. It's a remarkable definition of what it means to be lost. The good son is lost because of his goodness. He says, I slave for you. I mean, he, I mean he's referring to himself. There's no son language here. He says, I never disobeyed your orders. I slave for you. What Jesus is saying is that both the religious and the irreligious, both the moral and the hedonistic, 
both the Pharisee and tax collector, they've never seen their own lostness like this. The irreligious, they're self-indulgent. The religious, they're the moral and the dutiful. Each side is always judging the other side and saying, my way is the way to do it. And yet here's Jesus, he says, both ways are lost. Notice, he doesn't say that the gospel is the average of the two. He doesn't say that the gospel is the midpoint of you got to be balanced and, you know, you got to stay like in the middle. That's not what he's saying here. Nowhere does he say that. Don't mistake the gospel to be something in between moral and immoral or Pharisee and tax collector. You got to be balanced. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not a pendulum that swings back and forth between morality and immorality or morality and hedonism, right? That's not what it is. Conservative and liberal. That's not what the gospel is. If you think about what makes up the vibrancy of this community and this church, we're going to get to that in a second. It's not because you have people swinging back and forth between hedonism and legalism. Jesus is saying both sons, both of them are distant from the father, and so both sons are lost. But the younger son gets the robe, and he gets the ring, and he gets the sandals, and he gets the feast. He gets the music. The younger son, the bad son, gets the celebration. Why? Verse 17, he came to his senses. The reason why any church it's not just metro. What drives the vibrancy of any church, the life of the church, is not because you have good people and, oh, those bad people. That's not what drives. In fact, it's the other way around. It's those who are renewed. And what Jesus is clearly saying here is that it's actually easier for the younger son to come to his senses. You know why? Because the younger son knows he's sinned. The younger son knows he's rejected the father. The younger son has overtly been looking for a home where there is no home, and as a result, he's been homeless. He's bankrupt. The younger son knows he's a son, and yet he's been living as an orphan. He's rejected all of his, he's rejected true options and potential and freedom looking for potential and options and freedom. And so he's lost his potential and his options and freedom. Penniless, friendless, homeless, practically jobless, foodless, he's got nothing. What is sin? Sin is being far from the father. Sin is about leaving home. Sin is living like an orphan. And it always leaves you bankrupt and empty and hungry and tired and naked. Anything that you place before the Father, another way of saying it, anything that replaces the Father in your life is leaving home. How do you know that you've grown distant from the Father. This is not an abstract question. This is for you right now where you are in any moment. How do you know that you're growing distant from the Father? 
Or how do you know that you've grown very distant from the Father? There's a severe famine. Famines have a way. What is a famine? It's when something happens that completely throws you off your track. You got a plan, you got a path, you're on your way. And something happens to completely throw you off. Those moments are like severe famines. And they're, they're horrible moments. I mean, they're horribly brutal and excruciating experiences, and yet they show you, they give you an opportunity to come to your senses. This younger son is a son, but he's longing for the food, these pods that the pigs are eating. Sin always promises you fullness. Sin always promises to make you more human. This is real living. And it always ends up making you less human. How do you become more human again? You have to come to your senses. The son comes to his senses. He realizes, I am a son. He realizes who his father is. He might have had a really flawed view of his father, clearly has a flawed view of his father, but his view was enough to bring him back home. Now, growing up, I was taught that the younger son was a sinner because he's bad. Don't be like him. Be like the elder son. He's good. The elder son obeys. But think about that. If that's how you view the narrative, look at the elder son. He's angry. He doesn't know where he stands with the father. Constantly comparing himself with other people. Selfish. Look, I'm just going to say it. There are people in this room who begin their lives, they identify with the younger son. Oh, when you sit with them, they'll tell you how bad they were. Oh, it's almost like a boastful thing. I was like this. This is how bad I was. Right? And I don't want to diminish the experience. I'm sure that you've experienced amazing grace, how sweet the sound. But before you met Jesus, you talk about how bad you were. You were terrible. But now, what you don't realize is you've actually become the elder brother. I've got rights. I've got a story. People need to hear from me. Why are they favoring these people? I'm the one that's credible. I've got rights here. Why am I not being noticed? I've got gifts here. I'm a good person now. I'm renewed. Trust me. We see you. And I want to invite you to hear the music of the gospel. We don't need you as a teacher. That's not what we're looking for. A gospel preaching church doesn't need that. The gospel, a gospel preaching church wants to see people authentically being renewed in the joy, what it means to delight in the Father again, being a son again, being a part of the party. 
I'm not saying that Christians aren't good. Clearly, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying, what I'm saying is, if you're good like the elder brother is good, there's an anger and a judgment and a critical part of your character that's actually eating away and corroding your soul. And the worst part about it is you don't see it. You know what another bad part of it is? Other people do. And they're too afraid to tell you because they don't want that. It's a lot of emotional baggage there. It's a lot of spiritual baggage. What it pulls you into is almost a mechanical relationship with God because it's still at the end of the day for you about what you do. It's a very mechanical and transactional relationship with God, our Father. The Lord is looking for an organic relationship with his sons. In a church like Metro, we've got a lot of former younger brothers. Maybe some of you are younger brothers, but you're taking a step closer to the Father. We've got a lot of closet elder brothers. And what Jesus is saying here is that, yes, both sons are lost, but notice the story is open-ended. We don't really know what happens with the elder brother. We don't know. Does he make it into the party? Why does Jesus do that? I'll tell you my theory in a sec. But what he's definitely saying is that the elder brother may be more lost. Now, what, is then, what does this text then teach us about being found? First, look at the repentance of the younger son. He's got this plan. Let's go back to that plan. This is how I'm going to get back in to my father's graces. That's us. When we're distant from the, from the father, when we're distant from God, we think repentance is about doing things to earn acceptance again. How do I prove myself to the father again so I can get into his, uh, get into his household and we do this because we still think that sin is about what you did. We still think it's about acts. And so in a sense, the younger son, to get back into the house, he thinks that the way to get back into the house is to essentially become like the elder brother, to become like the older son. So he begins his repentance, but then he gets cut off. He never gets to finish his proposal. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy Quick, get him the robe, the best robe. He doesn't get to finish his speech. He doesn't get to finish the proposal. Why? Because from the father's perspective, it was never about good and bad. It's about where your heart has found its home. Either you found it in the father or you found it in other things. Either the father is your home and the father is your life as a result or other things have become your home and other things have become your life. So when a Christian repents, more than repenting about good and bad, more than repenting about the bad things that he has done, what he's really repenting of is the desire to control his own life apart from God, replacing God with other things. That's what drives the bad, in a sense. But, you know, the great theologians, they didn't say that a Christian repents necessarily about bad things all the time. 
a Christian repents even of the damnable good works that he does. That's what, he's, that's what theologians say. The great theologians, or Christian repents about the damnable good works that they do. This son wants to be like the elder son. He gets cut off. And because the father's saying, it's not about working your way back in. You know why? Because working your way back in is just another way of trying to save yourself. It's another way of still trying to have control over your own life. In a sense, when you're good and you're serving and you're giving, in a mechanical and transactional way, seeing God as really in a transactional way, your relationship with God being more mechanical or transactional, right? Then you're really just using God and God in a sense owes you for all the good things that you've done. But a Christian finds his home in the Father and he experiences the embrace of the Father and thus experiences delight in the Father. And that delight shapes him and transforms him. It shapes his joy. It shapes and builds his confidence. His confidence doesn't rest in how much money he makes or where he lives, what neighborhood he lives in, or what school he attended, or anything like that, what kind of grades he receives. But his confidence is in the fact that he is his father's son. And he delights then, because he is his father's son, he delights in the father. Look at the character of my father. Look at the faithfulness of my father. Look at the love of my father. He delights in that embrace. So you've got to look at what real repentance is. Number two, look at the grace of the father. The father rushes to the younger son. He runs to the younger son. He embraces his son. He kisses his son. He celebrates the son. And his son barely repented. He doesn't just sit there and wait and say, mm-hmm, yes, but keep going, mm-hmm, yes, and, yeah, and. He doesn't do that. It's not the repentance that triggers the kiss. It's the kiss that triggers the repentance. It's not the repentance that triggers the embrace. It's the embrace that triggers the repentance. In other words, just come home. You may not have the words. Maybe it's all messed up because your view of the Father, you've been distant for a while. I'm not just talking about people who haven't been in the church. I'm talking about the people who grew up here. Maybe you're terrified of the Father. Maybe you feel like, oh, what do I have to offer? Look at the father. He's just waiting to embrace his son. He can't wait. He's just hoping and holding on for his son. That's the heart of the father. That's the love of the father. I went away, uh, you know, we had a pastor's retreat this past weekend for our, our pastors at Metro. And, uh, you know, for me, as, you, as the day winds down the next day, I just can't wait to get home because my son, you know, I can't wait to see my son. And um, I noticed as I was pulling in, the door was already open. And there he was at the end of the hallway, just looking and staring at the door. And so as I pulled up to the driveway, he's just kind of waiting there because the other guys, you know, they're much bigger than me. They, came, they stepped out of the car and he's probably like, no. No, no, so it's kind of tentative. And then we locked eyes on each other, and you see the grin, 
and I open the door and he runs over and he hugs me and he just kind of nestles his, his, his head and his body neck to neck and he's just holding on and he just sits there and he just, he just held that position for probably a good 10 minutes. That is the Father's joy. That is the delight of the Father in his child. Just come home. That's celebratory. At the end of the story, <clears throat> the father is humiliated. This elder son, I mean, disgraces and dishonors the father. But look at the father. The text says he's pleading with his son. He's inviting his son. Still gracious. He says, come in. Come home. Celebrate. Why is this narrative left open-ended? I think it's because it's Jesus' way of looking at people who've grown up in the church. He's looking at the religious, the Pharisees in his day. And it's his way of saying, I mean, we have, we look at Pharisees, we're like, right? But look at the heart of the Father. Jesus is looking at the Pharisees and saying, come in, come inside. The invitation is still there. There is a meal prepared for you. Who's going to eat it? I want my sons to eat it. See that? Look at the grace of God. Look at the grace, the kindness of Jesus. I want you to remember that. Lastly, look at the cost that he paid. Remember, the father's inheritance was blown away by the younger son. So the father, he doesn't own anything anymore. He's essentially bankrupted by his sons. Anything more he gives, it's really not his. It comes at a cost. It comes at a sacrifice. But the father doesn't sit there and calculate. When he says, quick, give him a robe, he doesn't sit there and say, look at my robes. I'll give him the middle, from the middle rack. It doesn't fit. That's not what he does. He says, quick, get the best robe. Give him the ring. Give him the, his feet. Give him the, prepare the feast. Kill the calf. You see that? Whose sandals were they? Whose robe is on him? Whose calf was killed? Where did the money for the party come from? When he speaks to the elder son, the last verse he says, uh, the text says, son, everything I have is yours. That's literally true. Because when the father divided the estate, the elder got the lion's share of the estate. So literally everything that was left belonged to that elder son. The younger son was brought back then at great cost to the elder son. Somebody had to pay. You ever been betrayed? You ever been rejected by somebody you care for deeply? It costs. It hurts. There's pain there. And that pain costs. It's almost, you feel almost as if uh, that person that rejected you or betrayed you owes you this huge debt to the point where an apology at this point is not going to be enough. You need to pay. And it's not a financial debt. It's a relational debt. So the elder is angry because this son has betrayed our family. Look at the debt. And you're going to keep paying? He insults the younger son. He insults his father. Why does Jesus give us such a terrible picture of an elder son? Because he's showing what we look like as elder brothers. 
constantly comparing and jealous and angry, not knowing where we stand. Look, we, look, we compare all sorts of stuff in the church with one another. But what would a true elder brother look like? A true elder brother, a good elder brother, would go out and say, the wealth doesn't matter. My estate doesn't matter. My brother is out there, and I know he's suffering, and I know he's lost. And I will offer my life. I will do whatever I can to save my brother, he, said, he would say, because he loves his brother. He will do anything. He will sacrifice anything. He will spare no expense to rescue his brother. Now, this younger brother didn't have an elder brother like that. But Jesus is saying, telling the story to show us that we do. Jesus Christ is presenting a terrible elder brother here in this text so that we would be able to look to a real one. In Hebrews chapter 2, the author of the book of Hebrews calls us brothers. He says we're brothers. You know why? Because Jesus Christ is the true elder brother. He didn't just leave his worldly estate to find us. He left the heavenly throne. He didn't just search for the lost, his lost brothers, at the cost of his wallet. He searched for us at the cost of his life. Remember? My favorite hymn. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Jesus Christ left home, not because he was far from the Father, not because he was distant from the Father, but because he was one with the Father. He was intimate with the Father. He and his Father are one, and his love for us was in concert with the Father's love for us and, the, and his love for the Father, all kind of playing there together. And in concert with that love, he did. God sent his one and only Son, and he gladly went. And he steps into our darkness. The light shines in the darkness. And he steps into the famine to find us. Remember this? When Jesus began his ministry, he was baptized by John the Baptist. When he began his ministry, the text says he was immediately sent into the wilderness. There he hungered for 40 days. No food. In other words, he physically experienced a famine. And he was hungry. And he was homeless. And he didn't just sacrifice his robe or his ring or, or sandals or a calf. He sacrificed his honor and his status and his identity and his kingliness and his authority and his power and his wealth and his glory and his sonship. And he emptied himself. The, the older brother here says, you sacrificed a fattened calf. Jesus Christ became the lamb that was slain. He became obedient to death on the cross. That's what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Philippians. And so on the cross, Jesus Christ is stripped naked and he became sin so that we would be clothed in his righteousness. Everything that belonged to him was endowed on us through the cross of Christ. He deserved honor, so we got the honor. He deserved ultimate acceptance, we got the acceptance. He deserved the embrace of God, we, got, we get the embrace of God. And yet on the cross, 
he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, he got the famine. He says, this is the ultimate cosmic famine. I'm suffering the ultimate pain of rejection, the ultimate pain, the betrayal, the father turning his face from me. Why? So that he could turn his face towards you and embrace you. Younger son, I mean, he probably arrived practically naked. Jesus Christ was stripped naked for his younger brothers. The younger son got the ring. Jesus Christ got a crown of thorns. The younger son got sandals for his feet. Jesus Christ got the nails. The cross is the one time where Jesus does not refer to his God as his father. And yet, Isaiah chapter 53 says, when, he's, when he looked out and saw what he would accomplish through the sacrifice, it made him satisfied. It gave him satisfaction. And so Jesus Christ was disowned. You've forsaken me. He was disowned so that we would be owned by God. We would be sons. To the degree that you believe that, everything else will be a famine compared to knowing Jesus. That's what's gonna make you come to your senses. Women, some of your Bibles maybe the more modern translations of the Bible these days, they kind of gender neutralize a lot of language. So you'll see passages like Galatians 4 in our word of encouragement today talk about you get the rights of sons. And your Bibles may actually be translated that you have the rights of sons and daughters, but you have to understand in ancient times, being a daughter had very little value. You see, being a daughter, daughter women didn't even have even an eyewitness to a crime, if you were a woman, your testimony would not hold up in court in the ancient times. So for the Apostle Paul to say that you, whether you are a widower, homeless, outcast, prostitute, woman, you can be a son, a firstborn son in God's eyes. What else is going to make you come to your senses? Friends, just come home and preach that to yourself every day. Every time you're tempted to wander, even a slight bit, look at that and say, but that is where the famine is. That's the famine. And come back to the arms of the Father. Preach that when you're overlooked. Preach that when you're suffering. Preach that when you're betrayed. Preach that when you have arguments with your parents. Preach that when your day is just gone to pot. Preach that when you're wanting something that somebody else has and you worked harder for it and you didn't get it. Preach that when you're passed over for a promotion. Preach that when your boss says you got deficiencies. Preach that when, you're, when your kids look like they're, they're just a mess and you look at your household and this is a lousy household. Preach that when you look at your career and you say, my career is a mess. I made all these mistakes. I'll never be able to recoup what I've lost. Preach that when you look at your bank account and you say, I've squandered the wealth. It's gone. Run back to the arms of the Father. That is the only source of richness that you need. Let's come to our senses.
Let's pray.